you know, San Francisco in the 1980s was like this giant free amusement park. And, you know, people like me went on all the rides and had a ball. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest on this episode is Joe Popopie. It was almost 20 years ago to the day, or at least to the month, that I first met Joe Popopie. It was at a Neil Hamburger show and someone introduced us. Joe gave me his business card, which said, Joe Popopie, general nuisance. And we got to talking, and it turned out that he was getting ready to release the uh, CD retrospective entitled Popo Anthology that includes everything the Popo Pies put out except for their first EP, the White EP. I wound up interviewing Joe as well as Bill Gould from Faith No More and the uh, Joe's second record lineup of the Popo Pies for an article in the San Francisco Bay Guardian. And those interviews are some of the earliest ones that actually get quoted from in the book itself. I didn't know that I was working on a book yet when I did those interviews, but certainly things sort of snowballed as a result of this article and a few others and really got me heading down that path. Now, with all that said, um, I wasn't sure how it would work to have Joe on as a guest, not because of anything to do with Joe, but just because we've gotten to be friends over the years and talked quite a bit on the phone about all kinds of different topics. And I wasn't sure how that dynamic would work in terms of uh, recording. But once we got talking, I realized that while he was talking to me, he was really talking to you, the listener. And I realized that the best thing for me to do was sort of get out of the way, maybe ask a question here or there. But really, this is sort of the world according to Joe or at least the uh, Popo Pies history and uh, some related tales, anecdotes, etc., according to Joe. We talked for over three hours, and the edited version of it came out to around two hours. And so I've broken it up into two episodes, with the uh, second part to follow as uh, episode 17 of this podcast. At one point, there is a reference to a Rolling Stone photo shoot and that was for, a, I believe, a one-page feature that appeared in maybe the fall of 1983. But in any event, the Popo Pies were photographed uh, along with Jerry Garcia because the Popo Pies had become known for playing entire sets consisting of nothing but the Grateful Dead's trucking. And so, without any further ado, we can go ahead and get into part one here. Again, part one of a two-part extravaganza with the one and only Joe Popopie. You first landed in San Jose. That's right. And I got a job working at Guitar Center. <laughs> which was fun. I got to play a lot of you know, cool instruments. I didn't make, you know, much money at all because I was, you know, making minimum wage and, you know, but, you know, it, it was, it was good. You know, I got acquainted with a lot of the uh, technology, state of the art technology of the day in terms of music, but yeah, what, what, what drove, well, you know, I, I was a music major and um, I always, wanted to go see because i grew up in the suburbs of new york city and then my parents moved to, to um south they were in the process of moving to south jersey southern new jersey and um you know I, in the meantime you know my old man thought it'd be a good idea if he sent me to a military school which i was not on board with at all and uh you know i was drag kicking and screaming to the to the place and um and in military school was a lot like what i imagine hell to be like but um, I, I, anyway, I went there for a year. So while they were in transition, uh, they, they would be living in an, a, like a small apartment in Philadelphia. And I don't think he wanted to live that close to me. So um, and like I say, not that I was a bad kid or anything, but but, uh, you know, it was just his idea because I think he went to a military school when he was in junior high. And 
I think, I don't know, maybe he had a good experience with advice or as hell didn't. And um, anyway, so I came out of that and I went to the, the public school, which was great. And um, anyway, what I, I, um, I went to a, I was a music major, uh, you know, late 1970s. And uh, as soon as I finished up there, I, um, you know, I, I always wanted to go to the West Coast. And, you know, I had some, some relatives who, who had relocated to San Jose. And I figured, you know, I, I would crash with them and, uh, you know, just until I found my own place and then that kind of thing. And, uh, and then, you know, and, and I actually kind of went back to, to uh, you know, South Jersey after I had spent the summer in San Jose. And I realized that, you know, San Jose wasn't really where I wanted to be. And then I thought, you know, the next time if I go back to California again, I'm going to live in San Francisco because that was, you know, because it just if, to start a band, to start a, you know, a punk new wave band in San Jose, just, you know, there's nothing there. And um, so, so like, okay, I, I go back to South Jersey again, you know, just to kind of hook up with my old pals and stuff and, and realize that, you know, I'm not happy there either. So uh, I had met Carlos Willingham. It, it, he was living around the San Jose area. And I met him when I worked in Guitar Center and uh, he came into the, the store and, and I, you know, he was one of the few like punk rock people that I, that I, you know, that came into that place. Most people in there were into like, you know, Sammy Hagar and the Scorpions and stuff like that. And, um, you know, so, so we, we struck up a fast friendship. And uh, when I came back West the second time, I crashed with Carlos at his pad in, in Los Gatos. And then I, you know, moved to San Fran, got a place in San Fran from there. And then when he moved up to San Francisco, I put him up in my place for a little bit until he found his own place. So, you know, repaid the favor. And um, so that's, that's kind of how I got there. Now, just before I left uh, South Jersey in like, I think it was like May of 1980, uh, I was finished with my, you know, college stuff. And um, I, you know, I, my music major buddies were, were real cool. And some of them were, were into, you know, punk new wave stuff. And I, and I, you know, did some recordings with my uh, music major pals because I was a music theory composition major. And I had, you know, I had a pretty good reputation there. And um, anyway, so I got some good guys together and I said, hey, listen, let's, I, I want to do this demo tape. And, uh, you know, I got some songs, some punk new wave songs, and I want to, you know, record them in the Ed Media studio in the music building. And, and so we, we recorded them in May. And that was the trucking and the Catholics that people hear on the, the white EP. The, the rest of the stuff on the white EP was, was recorded um, actually in the studio from scratch. It's at the automat. Uh, that's right. The automat. But the, the, the cool thing about the way we recorded it, see, is that we used live room miking. There wasn't like, I wasn't standing in a, an aquarium fish tank, you know, uh, you know, sealed off from everybody. And it wasn't, you know, so that my vocals wouldn't bleed into the other mics and everything like that. No, it was live room miking. And it was, it's actually a live recording. It's actually the way we sounded. If you were standing right there in the room, there's very little mixing or anything going on there. And there's certainly no overdubs. So uh, yeah, maybe that's why it's, it's so exciting. Yeah. You know? And uh, I, I love recording that way. You know, because if you got good players, that I think that's the way to go. My, you know, just my take. But because I'm kind of a purist, and so you know, once once that was done, and we slapped it together real fast, and it you know came together real fast. And uh, I just I just you know I took my tape and you know came west, you know did that thing, worked at Guitar Center for a little while, and thought that I'd meet a lot of people there, and I didn't. I only met one person, and that was Carlos. And um, you know, who later, you know, worked with Bruce Luce and that, that, uh, the weasel contingent. Right, right. Yeah. And, um, and, and Carlos, you know, it's funny how that meeting between Bruce and Carlos, I actually had something to do with, cause we were doing a benefit because, you know, I'm fast forwarding to eight, 1983. We were doing a benefit for the new, new method laundry, uh, which is, which was this, you know, cool, like club that, uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, punk rockers got together and, and built this stage and, you know, turned it into a little venue. And it used to be an old, you know, laundry place or industrial laundry place. Is that in and, uh, East Bay? 
the East Bay. Yeah, it's an it's, a, it's yeah. an Emory Emeryville. Right. That's what I thought. Okay, yeah. And um and and I was you know tight with uh, Tresca Bailing at the time. She was the bass player for Animal Things, right. and I was hanging hanging with her. And um and so you know and she said, hey, why don't, why don't you do a benefit? And I was like, okay. So um we did this thing where you know I I was going to do some sort of performance art thing and not do a typical show and. And, and Bruce came up and said, hey, Joe, let's let's play some music. And you know, while I was doing this thing and everybody was like, you know, what is, what is this guy doing? Because I, I was doing some weird thing. And and so Bruce got on the drums and I played bass and uh, Mikey played guitar. Mike King played guitar and uh, Carlos sang. And it was a weird pop up show. And so, you know. I, I just improvised with Bruce and I, Bruce gave me requests and I would play these songs on the bass. And, uh, you know, I, I did a little bit of talking in between the songs and Carlos just, you know, sang some into, you know, just off the top of his head, some stuff. And, and it went over so well that after the show, you know, Bruce said, Hey man, let's, let's start a band, you know? And, and so Carlos, you know, and I, it never, you know, I wasn't involved in it or I never got involved in it, but Carlos and, and uh, Bruce, you know, hit it off. And that's when they started the, uh, the weasel contingent. And that's how that's got started. But, but anyway, but back to 1980. Um, so, you know, I, I came West uh, again for the second time in like January of 81 and uh, you know, got a, got a place up in San Fran. And um, I was, I was working as a, a, a night watchman on the uh, Coyote Point Marina uh, in San Francisco Bay, sitting on the dock of the bay. <laughs> and I had these three 12-hour shifts a week. And, uh, it, it, and because I'm kind of a night owl anyway, that was a, it was a real good job for me. And uh, I, I really enjoyed being awake all night, watching the tide go up and down. It was, I didn't know tides went up and down. And they, and they do by about you know, like 12 feet or something every day and uh you know you'd walk down these gang planks and it'd be really steep man when the tide was low but i i did notice how it, it affected my my moods the the tides going in and out which was kind of cool and it was also cool because i could bring my solid body guitar and play in the little harbor house in between doing my rounds and and i could you know be out in my car listening to you know kusf and kalax and you know and um, I met I met a couple of cool people being a night watchman on the uh, Coyote Point Marina. Anyway, that so it was a cool job for me because I was up all night and uh, I got really out there, you know, as you do when you're up all night. And uh, so it it um, so I I was you know going along and uh, I I wanted to start my my band and I didn't even know what I was going to call it yet. I, I originally called it the White Bread Consciousness uh, when I was in New Jersey. And I thought, I don't know, for some reason I wanted to change it like that. That didn't, you know, grab me anymore. So I, I was uh, looking for band members, you know, to, to start a band. And I went to Haight-Ashbury for the first time. Wow, I went to Haight-Ashbury Music. And I saw some guy had a note on the wall that said, drummer wanted for bands or something. And I thought he was a drummer that wanted to get into a band. So I gave him a call. <laughs> And it turns out he was actually a guitarist. And so he goes, well, why don't you come over? I have some beers. And I went over you know, and I got drunk with this guy and we hung out and we did some improvising and stuff. And he's a guitar player. He's a cool guy. And, um, and he was, uh, oh, oh, he was really into Zippy the Pinhead too. That's why I hit it off with the guy. And he had this really great Zippy comic book there called The Nation of Pinheads. And I said, so we got to come up with a name for our band. Uh, what are we going to call it? So I'm, I'm, I'm thumbing through this zippy thing. And I, and I had a few beers. And I'm a little slightly lit, you know. And I, and I come across this page in the zippy comic book. And it says, get that Aaron boy in here, which is Zippy the Pinhead. And Mr. Toad, Mr. Toad says, I want you to increase the uh, sawdust content to 75% and all jiffy cakes and popo pies. I said, popo pies. That's, that's a great name. But he spelled it differently, like Bill Griffith spelled it P-O-P-P-O pies. And I and I thought, no, nah, no, nah, what we need to do is we need to put dashes in it, you know, and then it'll look really tacky over the front of a bass drum, you know, P-O-B-O-P-I-E-S. And that's how the name, that's how I got the name of the band. And um, so that guitarist, you know, he kind of fell off after a while. You know, I, I was going through band members like, you know, like nothing. And uh, but anyway, we went to this party um you know i still hadn't sent out 
anything to clubs yet because I still didn't have a band yet. But I, I went to a party that, you know, this guy who I met there from the Bulletin Board on Haight-Ashbury Music. And um, it was with this, this cool artist guy named Forrest McFarlane who had a little art gallery in the Mission and, and was like his home too. And he had this party and I would, you know, did something they, they were like writing things on the like they had like something rolled out where you could like graffiti on the wall or something and i said you know i deliberately wrote something to piss some people off on on purpose and yeah you know, and so people tore it down and everything. so I, I drew a lot of attention to myself and then and uh there was this uh very attractive woman you know this english woman and <laughs> anyway so i was hitting on her and i didn't realize that she was mikey's girlfriend and and so you know she she called me up like the next day and says hey we're we're going to you know to the movies and you know do you want to come with us I said sure so and that's where I met Mikey and so you know Mikey and I kind of became partners in crime and and did a, a lot of uh, we raised a lot of hell and we became you know good friends and and right around that that time I started sending stuff out because I had met enough people that I felt that I could you know throw together a band when and if somebody gave me a gig. So I sent out my tape, my demo tape to a bunch of clubs, you know, made some phone calls and stuff, made a little press release and everything. And um, I, I lucked out because my very first show was opening for the waitresses at, uh, you know, you know, Berkeley I know. Square. Yeah. 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 So, so I, we, we did, we did this show, we threw it together and uh, I, I thought it was terrible myself. I mean, it was the first show. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. And, uh, and and here it was. I was playing in front of this like packed house in Berkeley Square. And, you know, and um, so I, I learned a lot from that show about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And uh, and, and it was a trucking show. We played trucking over and over again because, you know, again, we didn't have a lot of time before the show and uh, I didn't have a lot of time to get uh, musicians together. And I thought, well, you know, we'll just, we'll just wing it. And um, so, so anyway, so from that point, the next gig we played was at the Sound of Music, which was, you know, it, it's kind of like a rite of passage. It's like this dive in the tenderloin and it's, you know, it's, it's nasty and the acoustics suck. And, you know, it, it was a good place to start. And um, so we, uh, you know, took down the uh, one of the, one of the highlights of it was we took down the, uh, the the letters on the on the marquee and saved them because our rehearsal space. Because at that point I was playing with uh, I had, I had run into Ben Cohen, and, okay. uh, and and Ben, you know, was was the drummer in the band. And Ben is, you know, just a great spirit. He's just really high energy, and he's you know, he's a good good person to do a, a prankster band with. And anyway. Um, Ben had this idea that we should take down the Popo Pies letters uh, off the marquee of the Sound of Music. So those letters that you see on the back of the white EP, you know, those P-O-P, that's uh, where we got those letters from. Yeah. So a little bit of trivia there. But so so it was Ben, it was me and Ben, and and I forget. Who the well, was Mark guy. Bowen already in it at that point? or No, Mark hadn't joined yet. Mark hadn't joined it and it was just Ben at first. And, um, and I think Mikey was, was in, in on that one, the sound of music one. And you had a, a bit, maybe there was a bass player who was going to UC Berkeley. Um, and I'm forgetting the name, but not Jeff Ruzich. Cause he's the one from back home, right? He yeah. Was yeah. Jeff was, my, was, was one of yeah. my music buddies and Jeff was the guy actually Jeff and you know, that all that white EP music, Jeff is the only instrumentalist that's consistent through the whole thing. He was the bass player when we did the live room miking at the Ed Media Studio that recorded the original Truckin' and Catholics. And he was also, he flew out to finish up the album when we actually got the record deal and you know, did, the, did the recording at the, the Automat. What was going on simultaneously right around that was I went down, you know, once I had gotten a couple of shows under my belt, I went down to the local radio station, KUSF, and, uh, you know, with my tape, and I encountered this DJ uh, who was also from New Jersey, so we kind of bonded a little bit, and this guy named David Basson, and I said, David, I've got a really good 
you know, song here, you know, it's this trucking song and I, you know, and the Catholics are attacking some other good songs in this, and, you know, there's four songs in this demo tape and you can use whatever one you want. If you, if you can cart them up, I mean, you know, we don't have a 45 or any vinyl or anything. We can't really afford that. So, you know, if you, if you cart this up and play it, that would be great. And all I was thinking was, I just wanted to hear my music on the radio and get, get a kick out of it. And, and also I thought it might help us get more shows. And that was about as far as I thought it would go. But little did I know that um, this trucking and the Catholics are attacking became these, this big hit. You know, it's like it was became this big indie hit and people were calling up and requesting it like crazy, both those songs. And so much so that somebody from Calix came across the bay one day into KUSF and said, hey, you know, we, we've heard this song and, and we want to get a copy of it. Can we, you know can we get a you know, copy of it? And, and they just carted it because what they do is they, they, what David Bassett did is he took it off the cassette. I don't know if he took it off the cassette tape or the reel to reel. I don't know. I had a reel to reel version of it also, obviously. And he took it off that and put it on these, you know, back then they had carts and they were, what they were is they were eight track cartridges and they, yeah. they could make them, they could make them there at the, at the radio station. And they would just be just long enough to, you know, play your, your song, you know, you cut them to any length you want and you could, you know, cart it up. And so they had a, a, a stack of carts. And um, so he put those two songs on carts and, you know, the, the Kalax people or the Calax people came over to KUSF and says, Hey, you know, we want a copy of this. Can we copy it from you? Cause we want to play it on our radio station. So um, they, you know, copied those two songs and played them on, you know, went over and played on their radio stage. And, and at the meantime, I don't even know that this is happening. And, you know, one day I turn on the radio and, you know, and I'm in the East Bay and I'm hearing this. And I'm like, how did these guys get a hold of this stuff? And then I found, would find out later. So, um, you know, it, it is helping out me getting some gigs. And, you know, we start playing more and, and every, every gig is like a happening, you know, it's like a Ken Kesey thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's wild and it's crazy and the audiences go nuts and, you know, some of half of them love us and half of them hate us. And, um, you know, the crowds are starting to get a little bigger and this K this, uh, trucking and Catholics become like the most requested song. This was like in late 1981. And, uh, Howie Klein is a DJ on KUSF and he, he sees this and he says, how do I get in touch with this guy? I want to do a deal with him, he says to people. And so he goes, yeah, I don't know. See, at the time I was technically homeless. I was, you know, couch surfing. So, uh, you know, my life was, you know, very uh, unorganized <laughs> to, to say the least. And um, I was just you know, like couch surfing and, uh, you know, just, just, kind of having a good time. I mean, you have to understand something, you know, San Francisco in the 1980s was like this giant free amusement park, but it didn't know it. And, you know, people like me went on all the rides and had a ball. And, and so that's kind of what I was doing with my life at that point. And, uh, you know, I, had, I think I just gotten laid off my job or something and, and I was collecting unemployment. I don't even know. I don't think I was collecting unemployment. But I, I was just, um, you know, I was free and I was, uh, you know, having the time of my life. And um, so how he couldn't get a hold of me for a couple of months. And finally, you know, when I got a steady place, um, you know, he found out where I was and he gave me a call one day. And this was, um, I think, about March of 1982. And he said, uh, hey, man, you know, my name's Howie Klein. And, I, you know, I got this record label and this and that and the other thing. And he goes, uh, have you, you know, have you ever thought about doing a record deal? I, you know, I heard you're trucking and you're Catholics. And, you know, I just like to do a record deal. And, and he said, well, why don't you come over to my, my place and talk? So I went over to his pad and we talked, you know, and he seemed like a good guy, you know. And, and he said, well, here's how I visualize it. It would be this, 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 and the other thing, and, you know, and so on. And, and I was like, okay, well, shit, man. I, you know, I got nobody else is offering me a record deal. It's, you know, and I got nothing else going on in my life. Sure. Why not? I'm, I'm on board. Let's, let's do it. But, I, but I want to um, emphasize something that, that happened. See, when I was crashing at my friend Debbie's house, uh, she had this boom box, right? And this is after I'd done some interviews and we had done some live shows and I had had cassettes of, of all of those things. I decided to put something out. This is long before I 
talk to Howie. So what ha- so what I do, what I do is this, is um, I take Debbie's boombox and I take these tapes, these cassette tapes, and I create this little this little piece of, of artwork. And uh, you know, it it has trucking on it and it has Catholics on it, and it's all broken up in a way that you know it cuts back and forth between like radio interviews that I did that were particularly amusing. And um, let me see, uh, it has some live versions of trucking on it or parts of it, and um, and and I put it out and I I made a bunch of cassettes. And how I labeled it was they were like blank cassettes and I just took the white label and I got one of those children's printing sets where, you, you know, you put the letters on the little stamper and you put it in the ink pad and you stuff. And I, and I just stamped bootleg on it, you know, Popo Pie's bootleg. And, and that was what it was. And okay. So what I did with this, this little thing, this thing that I call Popo Pie's bootleg, which was like a, I don't know, maybe it was like 25 minutes or 30 minutes of, of just popo craziness. And I decided to see if I could sell it, you know, to the local, you know, independent record stores, because there were a lot of them in the Bay Area at that time. And so here I am, I'm homeless and I'm couch surfing and I'm, you know, making my first uh, offering here. And um, I, so I ran, you know, dubbed off some copies on our boombox and, and I didn't have cases and, and this will give you an idea of what the 1980s was all about. I mean, we were extremely resourceful. And even though we had no money, we weren't going to let that stand in the way of us getting something done. And so what I did was I, I didn't have cases for these, these blank cassettes. And I just put the label on myself. And, and I put them in the, a Ziploc bag. And I ran off a Xerox of what the you know contents of it were, and it was written on this you know music manuscript paper, so it looked really funky. But you know, I realized that that was part of the charm of it, and it was that was actually a smart marketing move on my point. I, I didn't even realize it because everybody else, you know, that put their cassettes in these independent record stores had like you know, they had a box and they had a slick label and everything, and mine was this goofy thing that stuck out like a sore thumb because it was in a Ziploc bag. So I, I went around to these independent record stores and I said, look, uh, if you give me $5 for this, you can charge whatever you want. And I'm, I'm selling these things, five bucks a pop. And I knew the, the truck and Catholics were, were a hot item on the local radio station and, and Kalax. So I said, you know, I might be able to sell some of these. And, and, you know, I thought I might be able to sell a couple, but man, I, the, the demand for this was insane. And I, so what I had to do was I had to go find a high speed duping thing because I couldn't really keep up with the demand. So I'm, I must have sold like several hundred of these things before I had that conversation with Howie. You know, this was my thing. I didn't put out a single because I didn't have the money to put out a single. But I did have the money to buy, you know, some cassettes in bulk. And how I got them all copied was I would take the streetcar out to San Francisco State. And they had a high-speed duping machine in one of their libraries. So I would go out there with my alcohol and my Q-tips and I'd, you know, clean the heads and I'd, you know, slap in like, you know, a half a dozen at a time and, you know, high-speed dupe them off and high-speed dupe them off. And then I'd come back, you know, to where I was living at the time and I would, you know, slap these, you know, labels on them and put them in the Ziploc bags. With the... So I'm going around all these stores, first in San Francisco. And there was, like I say, a lot of them. And, and then I went to the East Bay and I was selling them there too. And, uh, you know, I just, I made, you know, some pretty good dough, cash on the barrel head. And um, <laughs> now, mind you, the the Popo Pies, by the time I got get offered my first record deal, the Popo Pies have only been out, you know, we've, we've only been active for six months. And that's insanely fast. If you ever talk to any rock band that's trying to get a deal or, you know, usually, you know, they're around for years before anybody pays attention to them. So I was, you know, moving like lightning through this whole thing. And I think in August, I signed the deal. And in early September, we were in the studio, you know, hammering it out. So, you know, David Kahn was was the the engineer and he was, you know, brilliant. And he had a way of taking my my reel-to-reel tape. It was on a quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape. And he took the tape and he bounced it onto this 24-track system at uh, the Automat. And what we did was in order to make it sound wider, 
so that it would be you know congruent to the other things on the thing. We we put some a little bit of you know just coloring overdub on, on the edges. Nothing that would you know mess with the original audio verite of the of the the charm of the of the, of the sounds. You know, like we put a jangly guitar in and the Catholics are attacking, and I um, I put some some keyboard stuff in trucking that was just coloration. You know, the fast trucking and. Um, you know, it was good that Ruski was the bass player because, you know, he played the original bass on it. So playing to the track, he he did some kind of overdub of that too to make it sound wider, and and it worked. And so you know, and that was David Kahn's genius there. And um, you know, we did some other fun things like we like Warner Brothers wasn't going to let us use the the original uh, Grateful Dead thing like I had done on on you know my version of it when I made the demo because you know as you know it starts out. You know, right. truck, and, and then it kind of like goes like somebody pulled the plug on the machine and goes, Ooh, you know. So what what we did was we played it ourselves, and we we kind of got you know we psyched ourselves. You know, we're the Grateful Dead, okay, and we're playing this for the first time. You know, let's 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 really psych ourselves out, and you know. And so what what David Kahn did, which I thought was brilliant, was he 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 recorded that on a lacquer, which is like a you know. It has a certain amount of plays it can play before it, you know, is is you know not good anymore. But they could make lacquers at the at the at the automat. So he recorded the lacquer, and what we did is we went back behind the the alley behind where uh, the automat was, and he he picked up some some sand, some grit, and rubbed it in the grooves of the lacquer, so it would sound more like a record that had been played a bunch of times, and that had a really nice effect. And um, so it came out probably, you know, really quickly too. I mean, I think it was out by like the end of October. I mean, you recorded in less than two months, it had materialized as a record. All the brands banking new and pretty. A lot of things about the YDP, you know, like I got in right at the cusp of, uh, you know, when 415 was being annexed by Columbia Records. So I had the benefit of, you know, being a corporate rocker without selling my soul, soul to the devil. And it's it was interesting because like I wouldn't have gotten, you know, I wouldn't have been interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine if I was indie. You know, I wouldn't have gotten commercial airplay because the YDP got some commercial airplay too. You know, and that, that's something that doesn't happen to indie bands, or at least in yeah. the 80s, it didn't happen to indie bands. Because, you know, it, it's this whole, you know, it, it's, a, it's a system. You know, the, the corporate rock system is a system. And, you know, you're either in it or you're not in it. And, uh, and you don't get to partake in the perks of being in the big rock magazines or, you know, being in very mainstream magazines. Like, for instance, the White EP was, was also reviewed by, the, uh, by Playboy magazine, of all things. And, uh, yeah, right. I mean, all these really mainstream, you know, high circulation publications I was tracking in. So I had that going for me. And, uh, and then, you know, we got hooked up with this big management company in New York and they did all our booking for us. So we, you know, we, we got on uh, Iggy Pop's tour and, uh, well, we toured, you know, East coast and West coast. And, um, you know, it was, it was great. It, and we made a lot of friends and, you know, I I had made the the judgment call that we would continue on with playing the one song over and over again as our first you know time out, and then you know and then later on I would you know have, but we could have played full sets, but I wanted to keep it that way and and you know so that everybody around the country would at least get one sample of what I had tortured the San Francisco audiences with, and and you know and that's funny on that tour that that was also where I met Courtney Love for the first time. And it was like, uh, it must have been February of 1983. So she was about 19 or something. And, you know, after the Iggy Pop shows, we were in Portland, Oregon. And, and we went back to this house and we did this videotape interview. But anyway, so Courtney was living at that house. And she came down and she was wearing nothing but a black negligee. And she said, hey, you hungry? And I was like, yeah, what do you got? She said, ah. And so she made me a quesadilla. And we chatted a little bit, and you know. Kind of hit it off, and 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 the next time I would see Courtney would be um, when I was crashing with Bill and Roddy 
uh, down on 10980 Shotwell after I got back from the East Coast. And, uh, you know, she, she was coming in there and she was crashing on the floor there too. And um, can you imagine, you know, yeah. a house full of all those kooks uh, just raising hell. And, you know, it was, we had, it was a good time for sure. Fall of 1983. Yeah. 1980s. Yeah. This is, this would have been September of 1983. So was Joan there too? Joan? Osato? Yes. Joan. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Jonas Sato, the, the, yeah. um, the photographer that, that did the Joe's second and third record photos and as well as some of the really faith no more photos shoots. Um, she, she lived there as well. Let me see. I came back to San Francisco. Oh, I well, actually, you stayed, you actually yeah, that, you know, I stayed I behind a lot of time trying to piece this together. I really, we should, in hindsight, I really should have done another interview to go over all this, but yeah, I remember piecing that together that it, I think sometimes I would just email you and you would tell me something. Yeah. That, that summer, you were there because a lot of those lyrics or a lot, excuse me, a lot of the lyrics on Joe's second record, were about yeah or about, about the east time. coast yeah. yeah right so okay well how that happens okay so we finished up a tour in like march or something on the east coast and uh, and i was on the east coast and i said well you know you guys go back to san francisco i'm gonna hang out here for a while you know take a break and cool my jets and and just you know go hang with some of these cool people that we met along the way so i was just basically couch surfing that whole time and yeah you know, i was used to that I, I got pretty good at couch surfing and I stayed in Washington, DC a little bit and then South Jersey a little bit and uh, uh, Hoboken and I actually got a sublet in Hob Hoboken for a couple of months. And, uh, and then I, uh, let me see, I lived a little bit in Manhattan, I was crashing with some people and then uh, went to Boston and Cambridge and lived there too. And um, anyway, yeah, that was where I really got, you know, I grew up around New York city but, you know, experiencing it as a kid where you just go into the city every once in a while to see a hockey game or something, you know, it, it was like, um, you know, when you experience it, experience it as a young adult, it's a totally different uh, experience. So, yeah, so I, I um, let me see, I, I learned a lot on that, that little, uh, that little tour, uh, that little vacation of mine. Um, what I under, what I started to pick up on is that for every Popo Pie fan that had a copy of the White EP, um, there was at least another 10 people that I encountered that didn't have the White EP, but had taped it on a cassette from somebody who did have the White EP. So I'm thinking like, however many records I sold, I have to multiply that by 10 because there's that many more people that don't buy records. And taping from cassettes, from, from vinyl or taping off the radio, that was the analog equivalent of file sharing, okay? Yeah. And so that was something I learned uh, when I was, you know, just hanging out with people. But but the time I spent around New York City, you know, living in Hoboken and a little bit in Manhattan and the Bronx and stuff, yeah, I really got I really got my fix on on New York City. I really got my, uh, you know, I, I really learned a lot. Let's just say that, and I and I realized what kind of a scene New York really was, and it's definitely not like a San Francisco or even an LA scene. It's it's very different. And if you you know listen to Joe's second record, you 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 know how I feel about it. I don't have to rehash that. But <laughs> when I was there, one of the people I was crashing with was uh, Mark Stewart, who was a friend of Bill's. They they grew up together, and and Mark is a, is an amazing person in and of himself he has a band uh and and but he he his claim to fame is that he wrote a, a broadway musical that won a tony award he would later write a broadway musical that uh, and uh you know passing strange it's called if you're in case you're interested okay. in it. and he also has a band called i think it's called stew and the negro problem and and he, he's a black guy so that's his okay. you know his 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 you know, his joke <laughs> Right. And uh, but anyway, Mark's a great guy, totally cool guy. And I was staying with him in Alphabet City in Lower Manhattan. And um, yeah, we, we we were up, it was a hot summer night, and I was talking and, and we were all, you know, talking, and he was talking with his housemate, and 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 he they subletted from this guy named Jamal. And um and <laughs> and yeah, and, and so Mark said, Yeah, do you ever notice how Jamal always always says these uh you know phrases like spirit? And the other guy said, yeah, and, and excellent. And then Mark said, and good stuff. And then they both at the same time said, and further on down the road. 
And I heard that and I was like, man, that's awesome. And I whipped out my little notepad and I wrote those phrases down. I was like, dude, that's a song. <laughs> that's going to be a song someday. And when I get the right music to it, it'll, it'll come, it'll come to, to life. And but, of course, the words came before the music or did you already had the music? Oh yeah. The words came before the music. Absolutely. And, um, and, and I just, they were some lyrics in search of a song. And um, so the, 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 the chords for the song, the chord progression for the song or the bass line for the song came from uh, the, the, the rehearsals for the very first Faith No More show, which I was the vocalist on. And uh, we were in, uh, they, they shared a practice studio in the Vats in one of the end rooms, the square rooms, not the, the, beer, the beer tank rooms and the beer tank tanks, I should say. So there was, there was a window in it and stuff. And you had light and everything. And, and uh, they shared it with Soldiers of Fortune, this, this other band, who uh, Craig Shell, this guy was quite a character. He's a funny guy. And Craig was there. And, um, and, and uh, what's McCullough? I think it was Jake, Jake from Crucifix. Jake right, Crucifix yeah. had, his, um, had his, his Marshall half stack there. And he had this really cool guitar. Um, it was tuned with like uh, Allen wrenches, you know, like those Allen wrench tuning instead of like tuning pegs, you know, kind of a gimmicky thing. But it was a real nice guitar. And so I picked up the guitar and Roddy was on drums and I just, you know, turned on the Marshall half stack and ooh, the sound was just so good. And, and that's when I crunched out that, you know, I just improvised that, that bass line that would become the bass line for, uh, you know, the words of Jamal. And, uh, you know, that's, that's when I came up with the, um, the, the music for it. And so, um, you know, and, and we did the rehearsal and, and I, and actually, you know, that's why there, there's that, those words are there in the first faith no more, um, you know, and, and I think that's why truck, uh, Chuck, I'm sorry, <laughs> Chuck, Chuck used those lyrics in, in a song, you know, that, that he would craft. Right. You know, they, Chuck they actually great. appear, they appear in that man, that means they appear in, well, if you count the first Faith No More show, two different Faith No More songs, and then if you count Words of Jamal one and two, two different Papa Pies songs. That's right. They're they're it, kind it, of a, it's <laughs> it's a recurring. It, it's a gift that keeps giving. Gift, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. I mean, but I don't know. It's just so good that you know. I don't well, know, it helped. It helped. It helped me. You know, some people would get on that, you know, say, well, all this stuff about the Popo Pies. But, you know, among other among other factors, one, one thing is that, you know, I always find that it helped when putting these together. It helps to have these little connections, uh, both yeah. in the personalities, but also in, in the music. And then when the music connects to the different people or connects the different bands together, uh, it gives it some cohesiveness amidst an otherwise sort of very kind of chaotic uh, tale that it trying to put together. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was definitely one of them. And then, and then musically though, I, I thought that song was the one that, that song and specifically the, the Joe's second record version of it. You know, I think that's like, if somebody wanted to say, you know, where is there an influence of Flipper on Faith No More? That I would say, you know, one, one way you could hear it would be that, that song, even though you wrote the music. It, it's, it's the missing link. Yeah, it is. It is kind of, Yeah. And, you know, and at the time, you know, the Faith No More guys were, were, were the Popeye Pies as well. We were kind of like one of the same, you know, late 83 through 84. We were kind of the same band. And, 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 then, and then Courtney decided to sing for Faith No More. And I used to go and heckle them. And, uh, and, and they loved that. And uh, it, it's weird. I mean, you think like, you know, a band, you know, somebody like Courtney Love and Faith No More. And you think there's only like, you know, 10 people in the audience, right? It's like wow you know it's like who would think like later on you know how that would you know grow to be insane insanely huge but you know to, to, to it was you know probably like almost as many people in the audience as there are on stage about that jerry garcia photo shoot for rolling stone magazine it was pretty wild we did it at the he was playing at the jerry garcia band was playing at the stone in san francisco it's just you know it's a kind of a medium-sized club and it was packed and you know he's doing his thing we came out in between inter intermission and we you know hung out with him but one of the things that i thought was very interesting about it was um jerry's personal uh bodyguards his personal security detail are these hell's angels dudes 
<laughs> and so I was like, man, I better not fuck up here. I'll get my ass stomped. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, you know, I didn't want to get on their, their bad side. So, so I, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And, and I, and I met Rock Scully, the dad's manager that said, cause you know, Rock was just talking to us and before Jerry came out and hung out with us in the kitchen before we took the picture. And, 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 and Rock was, was really cool too. And uh, I got to know him and I had a lot more communications with Rock over the next, I don't know, six months or something. He, he, Rock wanted to see if he could, you know, wrangle it to where he could get the Papa pies to open for the Grateful Dead. But that, that never materialized. But I thought it was just the idea of it was kind of funny that the Grateful Dead manager would want to do that. And, um, but anyway, the, I, I want to tell you a little bit about that. It, it was really weird because like the first time, or, you know, like when I met Jerry, it was like, when I met him, it, it was like I had known him for centuries. It's like I, I immediately just started talking to him like we were old friends. And, you know, every I've met a lot of famous rock stars in my time, but, you know, all of them kind of have, you know, kind of armor that they put up, you know, until they kind of feel you out and get to know you, you know, they're a little dodgy and, you know, but not Jerry. Jerry was like down to earth right away, like like I had known him for years. And, and we just started shooting the shit and talking about all kinds of cool stuff. And, uh, and here's what I noticed about both Jerry and rock and, and they're, both these people are dead now. May they rest in peace. And, um, they, they, they both had this vibe about it. It, it was as if they had cut out a hunk of time and space from the late 1960s and brought it with them, encapsulated themselves with it and brought it with them. It was in their vibe because, and the reason why I know so much about this, because when I, you know, I, when I was a little kid um, in the sixties growing up when I was in single digits, <laughs> um, you know, I had, I had seven older brothers and, si and sisters. So I had older siblings and they used to bring their friends over to the house. And, you know, these friends would talk about, you know, various topics of the day, which were very pressing, like, um, you know, the anti-war, not the anti, you know, the, the draft, you know, avoiding the draft. Well, all the older guys were, you know, they all had their plan to leave the country or, or something if their draft notice showed up and stuff and talking to these guys. And, you know, to, to understand, uh, you, you can't really understand what the vibe was like for young men between the age of 18 and 30 uh, during that time. It was, it was very exciting and it was very on the edge and a, kind of holy shit kind of way and 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 i and i would talk to these older the older guys and you know the kids and and they would tell me you know about the politics of the day and nixon and all that stuff and you know and and the vibe i got from those those kids those older guys that were draft sisters was the same vibe i felt when i stood around jerry and rock scully and it was like wow this is this is amazing you know it's like it was so intense and um, but like not like Jerry was living in the past or anything, but it, it, it was more like he saw everything through the perspective of somebody that was, uh, you know, had this, had the temperament of someone in the late 60s. But he was very aware of what was going on in, in the world. Like, for instance, you know, Jerry made it known that he was uh, he, he, he really dug punk rock and new wave and he because he dug the energy. And he told me, "Hey, man, don't ever, don't ever lose that energy that you got, that spontaneity, that prankster-esque sort of thing you're into, because that's that's precious. You know, you don't ever want, don't don't ever let these suits down in L.A. These you know these record company people you're going to deal with ever try and process that out of you, because that's that's awesome, and you know that's that's the shit of you know of, of being an excellent performer." And um, so, you know, he, he was giving me advice. It was really funny when I was talking to him. He was just, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun talking to him. And uh, I mean, one thing Jerry said one time was, was um, I remember him saying this. It's like, the key to having a happy life is to just imagine the most funnest life that you can imagine and then live it. And that's a great philosophy, right? I mean, it's so simple, right? Yeah. And uh, but you'd be surprised how many people, you know, don't uh, don't live that. Like I remember when I was like 14 years old, I, I was you know looking around at my parents and my friends' parents, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know what my life is gonna be like 
when, when I become an adult. But one thing I'm sure of is that I'm not going to be like those people. I'm, I mean, there's nothing about, you know, that lifestyle, you know, this, you know, get up and go to work and come home and watch the boob tube. And, you know, that's your life. I, I, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I was like, you know, that is not going to be how I'm going to live my life. And uh, if I can help it, and that's, you know, and, and I think that was kind of what Jerry was getting at when he said that, you know, it's like, you know, you, you do decide what your life is going to be. And, you know, don't, don't be afraid to imagine the most funnest life you can imagine and, and go for it. And that's what I tell everybody who's like, you know, in like between the age of like 18 and 30, you know, any, any crazy idea you have, any, you know, if you want to do something artistic or you want to start a small business or you want to run for public office or, you know, travel around the world by the seat of your pants or whatever, you know, do that stuff. Don't, you know, if you're sitting on a fence about it, don't be bashful. Go for it because you, you won't regret it. Even if you fall on your face, you will still learn so much that will help you the rest of your life. In. I keep trucking around like a doodah man Say in New York, no place to play Because it's just too close to old NJ We're trucking off the Buffalo You see the people around here, they move too slow You gotta take some time, make a place to go Just keep trucking We're trucking off the Buffalo You see the people around here, they move too slow You gotta take some time, make a place to go Just keep trucking Can't see, you gotta think, pick a place, pick a place to be Take a car, take a train, take a boat on the sea 